The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read a selection of verses from the chapter, not the entire chapter, and these verses will be up here on the overhead screen. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers and an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. 
Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. At this time, we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. The story that we just read is probably the most famous story in the Bible. For about 3,000 years, little children have learned this story. What I want you to learn, though, is what the story really means. A little while ago, we read the words of Jesus, who said that, All the stories in the Bible are really about him. So let's look at what happened in our story and see what Jesus meant. David had been chosen as Israel's next king. He had God's special oil poured on his head, what we call anointing, to show that he had been chosen by God to save God's people from their enemies. But so far, only David knew about this. He knew that he would one day be king, but nobody else knew that. And one day, David's dad told him to go visit his three older brothers who were in Saul's army, Israel's enemies. The Philistines were ready to fight. But instead of a normal battle where all the soldiers fight, the Philistines had one warrior, a man named Goliath, and Goliath was very, very big. He was over nine feet tall. You're going to have to follow me. That means that he would be from the floor to about here. And he wasn't skinny like a basketball player either. He had big, strong muscles. And Goliath came out every day and challenged Israel. He would tease them and say, hey, just let one man come out and fight me. Whoever wins, his side will be the winner. And he teased them, you know, they're all too chicken to fight. When David heard this, he volunteered to fight. Now, King Saul was glad that somebody was willing, but David, David was just a young shepherd boy, and Goliath had been a warrior for many years. So David told Saul about the times when lions or bears attacked his sheep, and he would fight them to save his sheep. David understood that as long as he was serving God, that he couldn't lose because God had promised to make him king. He couldn't die before God's promise came true. Well, I'm sure we all know how David went out to fight with just a sling. He slung the rock and it hit Goliath between the eyes. And he was so hurt and dizzy that he fell down. And David ran up, took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off with it. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? When Jesus came to earth, He was really the king, but nobody believed that about him. The Bible says that Jesus came to save his people who were lost. When he came, many people just laughed at him and didn't believe him. When David came to fight Goliath, his own brother laughed at him, and Saul told him that he wasn't able to fight and beat this man like a man like Goliath. Many times while Jesus was on earth, Men planned to kill him, and he knew it too. But he always said that he knew that it was not yet his time 
to die. The great enemy of God's people is sin. What is sin? He knows the answer. (laughs) He knows his catechism answer. Sin is any transgression of, right? Lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God. That means that sin is doing what God forbids or not doing what he commands. We all die because we are sinners. The Bible tells us that death is the punishment for sin. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus saves his people from their sins. And how did Jesus save us? He saved us by dying. He took the weapon of sin, death, and he used that to defeat sin. The Bible says that by death, Jesus defeated him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus used the devil's own weapon to defeat him, just like David used Goliath's own sword to kill him. Jesus beat sin and the devil all by himself. He didn't need our help. God was teaching his people this lesson when he sent young David to beat Goliath all by himself. Now this should fill our hearts with hope. Throughout our whole lives on this earth, we are going to fight against the sin that lives in our hearts. And this sin is greater and stronger than us. It is like Goliath. Remember what David said to Goliath though? The battle is the Lord's. And that's why we should be filled with hope. We know that Jesus fights the Goliath of our sins and the Goliath of death for sin. And because he won, we will win too. Let's pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of thy Son, Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen. Our text this morning is one of the most well-known Bible stories, and I intend to demonstrate this morning that it's also one of the most abused. We all know that the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is comprised mostly of stories, and the New Testament is comprised mostly of doctrinal letters. Now, the reason that the Bible begins with stories is because God is showing us that the Bible's doctrines are relevant to daily life. The epistles of the New Testament teach the same doctrines as the Old Testament stories, but they do it by way of objective statements. Without the stories of the Old Testament, we would be far more inclined than we already are to chalk up the doctrines of Scripture as a lot of airy-fairy ideas with no real-world application. And without the New Testament's doctrinal statements, we would be far more inclined than we already are to chalk up the Old Testament stories as feel-good self-help lessons. Now, people often complain that they don't or can't 
understand the Old Testament. And the main reason for this is because they don't know what they're supposed to be looking for when they read it. In our gospel reading a few minutes ago, Jesus tells us that when we read any passage of the Old Testament, such as 1 Samuel 17, we should be asking ourselves, where is Christ in this story? Anything else is misreading, and anything else will lead you into error, because you'll either get bored, or you'll mistake the purpose of the story and venture out to save yourself instead of trusting in Christ. The very first gospel promise, given in Genesis 3.15, which we also read earlier, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this promise foretells that whatever success the devil may have against Christ and his church, Christ will ultimately crush the devil's head. Remember when I preached on chapter 5 about Dagon getting his head knocked off? I noted how often in the Bible God's enemies receive deadly blows to the head. In Judges 4, Jael drives a tent stake through Sisera's head. In Judges 9, a woman drops a millstone on Abimelech's head. Here in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is felled by a rock to the head. In 2 Samuel 18, Absalom's rebellion ends when he gets his head caught in a tree branch. In 2 Samuel 20, Sheba's head is cut off by the people of Beth Maaca. And in all these, all these head wounds are just so many foreshadowings of Christ's victory over the devil. God is reminding his people of the great Genesis 3 promise and reminding the devil that his goose is cooked. When David goes to battle with a shepherd's staff in his hand, we can't help but think of Psalm 23, 4, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David goes into the valley of the shadow of death for the sake of his people who do not even recognize him as their rightful king. And with a shepherd's staff, he brings comfort to God's afflicted children. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep who do not recognize him as their rightful king until he saves them. David arrives to find that no one dared enter combat with Goliath. When Christ descended into our valley of tears, he finds us all cowering in fear. With his staff in hand, he enters single combat against the spiritual Goliath. And in David's victory over Goliath, he prefigures Christ's victory over the devil that was foretold in Genesis 3.15. He strikes the enemy in the head. Goliath is defeated by a contemptible little stone, not unlike the stone which the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. We read that David stood over Goliath and slew him with his own sword. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus used the devil's own weapon against him, just as David used Goliath's own weapon against him. In Revelation 3, 7, Jesus refers to himself, the words of Isaiah 22, 22, saying, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. 
The life of Jesus is the key that opens to us the real meaning of the life of David. Jesus himself says so. Now I trust that you can see that all these beautiful things, and more importantly, that you can see that I am not shoehorning them into Scripture, but that they are plain and obvious. Jesus tells us that all Scripture bears witness to Him. And if we can't see Him here, then we are blind. John 20, verse 31, tells us that the Bible stories are written, quote, that you may believe. The historical accounts of the Old Testament are not simply feel-good stories. They are intended to move us to faith. The stories are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and therefore, the stories are never, never intended as simple moral lessons, teaching us to emulate or copy the hero. The Bible is not a pop psychology self-help book. When you read of David, Gideon, or Joshua, if you see yourself in the story and what you should do in such circumstances, then you have made yourself the focus, and you have subverted the gospel. The purpose of the stories is not to teach you to have faith in yourself. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think that you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He doesn't say the Scriptures testify of you. He is the star of the story, not you. You ain't David. And that's why I adamantly object to the common method of teaching children Bible stories. The story of Daniel, for instance, in the lion's den, isn't about daring to be a Daniel. Yes, it is important. It is an important lesson for Christians, especially Christian children, to learn to stand alone for their faith against the persecution of the world. But turning the story of Daniel into that kind of moral lesson is an abuse of the story because it makes self the focus instead of Christ. Now this rather long tirade is important and I'm tempted to drag it out even longer because the story of David and Goliath is probably the most abused story in the Bible. The moral of the story isn't that we all have our own personal Goliaths to slay or some modernistic hogwash like that. It isn't, what it is, is about Christ entering into single combat against his and our enemy and single-handedly saving his own sheep. This story and every other story in the Old and New Testaments is really about the grace of God in Christ. Now, I know that some people may feel disappointed by this approach, but nobody likes to be told that their God is an idol. In the natural self-centeredness of our hearts, we'd much rather be the star of the Bible stories. We all like the story of David and Goliath better if we're the hero instead of Jesus. That is a sad fact, but it is true. And even sadder is the fact that this is the most common way of telling Bible stories, this wrong way. And in fact, it's the way most sermons are constructed. So in this story of David and Goliath, if we focus on faithless Saul and the fearful army of Israel, if we focus on the arrogant Philistines and their blaspheming hero Goliath, if we focus on sarcastic Eliab or on David's confidence, we're leaving out the most important part of the story. 
Namely, the God who orchestrated these events. The great sin of the human heart is selfishness. And we fall right in the trap of our own wicked hearts when we identify with the hero of the story. Because you see, when we do that, the main character with all his acts, his sins, his mistakes becomes the focus. Whereas the focus should be the acts of God. It's a lot easier for our sinful hearts to not believe in God. We're more comfortable treating the Bible like a human invention instead of as God's very own word. We all have room in our hearts for God as long as He comes second. That's why the first commandment addresses us, Thou shalt have no other God before me. God will not be co-God of our hearts. If there is any other God, it will be before Jehovah. Reading the Bible stories properly is hard to do, not because they're difficult to understand, but because our hearts say no to God. Now, in our story, faith seems all but gone. Now, it isn't really gone. Its effects were stifled by Saul's unbelief and God's anger at Israel because of Saul. Israel had been disciplined for wanting a worldly king, and God was now disciplining them for having a worldly king. Psalm 69, verse 27 says, Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. God often punishes sin with more sin. Now, how is it that David arrived just as Goliath was taunting the armies of the living God? This was no chance. This wasn't dumb luck. God sent David there at this exact moment. And he did so because it was necessary to show David's mettle. When the people later learned that he had long since been anointed king, everyone would have implicit confidence in him. No one would say, like Saul's critics, how can this man save us? David hears the sneering blasphemies of Goliath. And he too is filled with emotion, but it isn't the fear that everyone else feels. It is righteous anger, holy indignation that any child of the dust should speak haughtily against the God of heaven. Question 99 of our catechism teaches us that the third commandment forbids profaning or abusing the name of God or by silence or connivance being partakers of these horrible sins in others. Did you catch that? By silence or connivance being partakers of these horrible sins in others. If you curse a man's mother, he will knock your block off, and justifiably so. But curse his heavenly father, and he'll stand there quiet as a church mouse. Brethren, these things ought not so to be. When we stand silent at men profaning God's name, we become partakers in their sin. So let me ask a pointed question. When you're watching a movie or a TV show and a character blasphemes God's name or swears, do you get up in anger and shut the blasphemy off? How dare this no-account little puke take God's holy name on his vile lips and profane the glorious name of the Most High God? If you can excuse it with, well, it's just art, it's just a movie, you yourself are guilty of profaning God's name. In fact, you're doubly guilty because you've stood by silently 
while someone else did it, and by your silence you have given consent. David was filled at holy anger, with holy anger, that God's name was profaned by this wicked Philistine. So he began to inquire about the reward for silencing this clown. The faith that stirred David drew a few like-minded men, and soon a small group of soldiers was forming around David. Eliab, David's older brother, who knew that David was anointed king and therefore should have shown respect for David and for God, blurted out some smart-alecky comment about David leaving the sheep. It was as if Eliab were saying, David, you can't, even do, you can't do anything right. You can't even watch sheep without messing up. Don't get any ideas. But David persisted in a line of questioning that demonstrated his faith And this brought David to Saul's attention. When Saul called for David, David volunteered immediately to fight. And like all unbelievers, Saul told David of the insurmountable obstacles. Saul could only see David and Goliath. He could not see the God that was with David. Oh, you might stand a chance if you lean on the arm of flesh. We hear this all the time, as if the only way to save our nation is to join in common cause with unbelievers, as if God needs our help. David testified of the victories that God had already given him. Against lions and bears, the battle was the Lord's. Lions and bears are fiercer than any loudmouthed soldier. Why wouldn't God give him the same success over Goliath that he had already given him over lions and bears? When Saul consents and lets David go, he says, the Lord is with you, or the Lord be with you. Now, this meant nothing to Saul, but it meant a lot to David. Think about it. Do you remember what we read last week? The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Here is Saul himself saying to his successor, the Spirit, the Lord is with you. Saul had no idea what he was saying, and that made it all the more poignant for David. God will remove Saul for David, and to reassure David, God puts these words into Saul's mouth. The Lord is with you. Saul can only see with the eyes of unbelief. Look, if you're going to attempt this, then you've got to do it in the way that makes worldly sense. And so he fits David with his armor. Remember, Saul is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. It'd be like fitting me, I guess, in in Caleb's clothes. So no wonder David turns it all down and goes out with just his shepherd's staff and a sling. As David approached, Goliath mocked him and cursed him in the name of his gods. Now that tells us something important. Goliath saw this battle as a spiritual conflict. And he was more correct than he could have imagined. It was. It was a battle between God and his enemies. And David saw the battle in this light too. David told Goliath, God will give you into Israel's hands and both you and your army will be food for the vultures. Then David slung a stone which hit Goliath right between the eyes, probably the only place on his body unprotected by armor. And using Goliath's own sword, David cut off the giant's head. The Philistines fled in panic because they had seen in Israel a power that they could not match. This was the power of Christ. 
Now, we read before that Israel had been tormented for 40 days. Do you think that's without significance? Before Jesus embarks on the battle that will terminate in the crucifixion, he first faced the devil's temptations in the wilderness for 40 days. The devil who roams to and fro like a roaring lion was conquered by Christ at Calvary just as he was defeated by Christ in the wilderness when Christ fasted for 40 days. Just as David freed his sheep from the paw of the bear and of the lion, Christ frees his people from the devil, the roaring lion. Remember that no one but David knew that he was the anointed of the Lord. Saul had no idea. None of the army knew. And David descended into the valley of the shadow of death, and he did not fear the evil Goliath because he knew that the Lord was with him. If he was destined to be king, there's no way he could die. Goliath had to be defeated or God's promise couldn't come true. David saw the mountain of evidence stacked against God's promise and he clung to it in faith anyway. And in this event, David gives us a beautiful picture of Christ in his state of humiliation. Now, what does that mean, the state of humiliation? We think of Christ as sitting in heaven, ruling over all creation. And that's true. But that's his state of exaltation. Before he was exalted, he first descended into a state of humiliation, which consisted of him being born, and that in a low condition, being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, undergoing the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Now, Christ is the anointed of God, the Alpha and Omega, the elect in whom his soul delighteth. And yet Christ came in the form of a servant. And in that lowly state, Christ defeated our great foe. Jesus didn't defeat sin, riding on his white horse, judging and making war. He did it by dying on a shameful cross. David marched out to battle the enemy of God's church in confidence that the victory must be his since God had willed to set him on the throne. David endured the shame of not being acknowledged as the deliverer of Israel. The Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. David went out to battle with Goliath incognito in a manner of speaking. He went out as God's anointed king even though no one there acknowledged it. David's own brother mocked him by saying, With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Jesus went to battle that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And no one there present acknowledged what was happening that day. His scornful brothers mocked him in the very words of Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Now the title of our sermon this morning is, The Battle is the Lord's. These are the words that David speaks to Goliath. Goliath recognized that the battle was spiritual in nature, and so did David. But more importantly, David's words teach us that all of the conflicts of the church throughout the ages, all battles that she must face in her earthly sojourn are, in very fact, the Lord's battles. It is always the Lord who is fighting for his 
people. Your battle with indwelling sin, your gro- what we call sanctification, that is God fighting to conform you to the image of Christ. Your gross lapses into sin are reminders that the battle is the Lord's. That when you are left in the power of your own hand, you fold like a cheap suit. Whenever God allows His people participation in the battle, He always does it in a way that precludes them from imagining that they are great and strong. I hate feeling like the church is grossly outnumbered and outgunned by the forces of evil. I don't like feeling as if the degenerate governments of the world are conspiring together against the Lord and against His Christ. But on the other hand, I know that when they do this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Bold, undefeatable Goliath is taken out by a kid with a slingshot. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And thus it always is. I hate the feeling of constant battle with my own sinful nature. Whether I turn to the right hand or to the left, my deceitful heart is always ready to betray me into sin. It is a discouraging thing to battle oneself. And this is the Christian life. The only way to escape the battle is to die. Personal sanctification is a lot like trying to walk up a down escalator. You walk and walk and walk and walk, and in the end, you don't seem to make much progress. And that can be an incredibly discouraging feeling. And it would be completely disheartening were it not for the fact that the righteousness which gets us into heaven is not our own. When God grants us faith, as our beloved catechism teaches us, He also counts as ours the perfect righteousness of Christ. As if I never had committed any sin, and as if I had fully accomplished all the obedience that Christ has accomplished for me. So you mean to tell me that I will never defeat the indwelling sin in my heart? That's right. But the good news is, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Question 114 of our catechism encourages us that in spite of the fact that even the holiest men while in this life have only the smallest beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some but all the commandments of God. So you see it's not me who triumphs over the sin of my heart. I could never do that. But Jesus by his spirit makes me sincerely willing and ready to live unto him. And though I may attain only the smallest beginning of obedience in this life, nevertheless God grants me a sincere purpose to live Not only according to some of God's commandments, but according to all of them. Look, it's either you go out against Goliath on your own and get humiliated over and over. Do battle with your own sinful nature and fail like a dog every time. Or put all your confidence in David's greater son and rest in his victory. Because Jesus has won 
and you are united to Jesus, you are a partaker of his victory. And that means that when you experience a joyous victory, when you successfully resist a temptation, when you gain a triumph over the sinful drive of your own heart, you can know that your King David has slain the giant for you. And it also means that when you fall, when you stumble, when you sin, you can know that this is all you could ever expect if it were up to you. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, without me, you can do, I don't know, 43.7%, or without me, you can do 1%. He says, without me, you can do nothing. There is not a single aspect of your Christian life where you can experience victory or success unless the Lord builds the house. My only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.